You're listening to the Foundation Podcast. This is The Chase, bringing you everything you need to know about policies affecting you, your family, and your community. I'm Andrew Brown. And I'm James Quintero. And welcome to another exciting episode of The Chase. James, I've got a confession. Uh-oh. Am I in trouble? No, I might be. You have to promise me that you won't take my conservative card for admitting this. I make no promises. So testimony started within the last two weeks. Session has finally hit. Hearings are happening. It feels real now. Do I have to turn in my conservative card if I listen to testify by Rage Against the Machine to get myself psyched up? (laughs) Just like slamming outside the hearing room. Absolutely not. In fact, I give you major kudos for admitting that. I won't tell you who I listened (laughs) to beforehand for fear of actually getting my conservative card revoked. It's Barry Manilow. It's Taylor Swift, yeah? Phil Collins. Oh, nice. (laughs) Well, thank you all again for joining us for The Chase. As we mentioned, session is here. Hearings are started I've testified four times already, and I need to sleep. See, whereas you go for quantity, I go for quality, sir. So my first testimony (laughs) appearance isn't actually until tomorrow, but it's a big one. It's a big one. It's HB3, right? HB3. The Emergency Um, Powers Bill. Yeah. Still uh, still trying to work my way through that one. We'll see. I'm not going to ask you to give anything away, but... Good, because there's nothing to give away. (laughs) Folks can tune in through the Texas House website. What's the committee? Please do. House State Affairs tomorrow at 8 a.m. for all you early risers. Uh, We're going to get started 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Uh, Although I do believe the the governor's new emergency message is going to take precedence over uh, actual testimony. And so we'll be hearing from the PUC first. And then transition into into uh, HB3 testimony. So looking forward to it. So it could be a long day for you tomorrow. Indeed. <laughs> well, that gets me to just some of the practical things for those of you who are looking to engage with the legislature this year. We've learned a lot over the last couple of weeks over how testimony works. A little few things to know. COVID testing required for the Senate, not for the House. There's a little tent out in front on the north side of the Capitol. You have to walk through there. It takes about 15 minutes um, to do the little self-inflicted nose tickle with a National Guardsman standing right next to you. Not awkward at all. Sounds pleasant. And then once you're cleared, they give you a nice little wristband and you can mill about the Capitol at your delight, but your mask is required while in the Capitol building. Virtual testimony is available. I've seen it happen, but from what I've heard, it's not consistent. And really it's based on whether the bill author wants to have it or not. So if there's a bill that you want to testify on virtually, reach out to the author's office to see if they are interested in having virtual testimony. And let me just say, if you have a chance to come in person to the Texas Capitol and give your thoughts in person, do it. Absolutely. Uh, Virtual testimony, while I think convenient and in some cases perhaps necessary, especially for those folks who are most at risk, you really lose something. There's something lost in translation when you do it online as opposed to in person. And so if if you have a chance to come and let your voice be heard at the Capitol, do it. Yes, absolutely. And they are still working out the kinks with the technology on virtual testimony. So in-person testimony is much advised. And uh, anybody can testify or what's the, what's the switch on that? 
anybody can testify. You go and register for your bill. Now, virtual, again, it's kind of up in the air. It's not really clear how that works. So talk to the committee offices. But if you're testifying in person, anybody can testify. Um, you register on kiosks. Do you think we'll know how this all works by the end of session, maybe? Oh, yeah. By sunny die, we'll have it all figured out, and then they won't be taking any testimony anymore. It's a well-designed plan. <laughs> so speaking of hearings, other than HB3, what are you watching right now in terms of bill? Well, a bill, a big bill just dropped today, Senate Bill 10, which has uh, several major co-authors on the bill. This is the, uh, the Senate's uh, version of tax taxpayer-funded lobbying reform. Uh, I think this is probably going to be the major vehicle in the upper chamber. Uh, we're already seeing a lot of really good dialogue around this bill. Uh, it takes aim at the practice of using tax dollars to fund lobbyists while also making clear in the bill that local officials and employees are very much still able to participate in the process. Of course, that's been a major point of contention. You know, the other side has, has tried to, I think, muddy the waters to some extent, saying that if some of the legislation that we've supported in the past had come into play, that they wouldn't be able to come to the to the Texas Capitol and offer their thoughts and testimony, which is totally inaccurate. But within SB 10, it makes it very clear that they can and that they are encouraged to do so. So looking forward to throwing the uh, the foundation support behind that bill. That's great. That's great. Uh, one that I was testifying on this week, HB 135 by Representative Ina Minjares. It has a companion in the Senate, Senate Bill 647 by Colcorst. And this is a bill that would require Child Protective Services to provide parents with a notification of their rights when they first show up at the door and say, we're investigating a report of abuse or neglect. Uh, it's basically Miranda for Child Protective Services. I think that's something we've all gotten familiar with over TV over the past few years. You have the right to remain silent, all of that. Uh, it's basically modified for rights that all families have that are already codified in Texas statute as well as DFPS policy. And all these bills do is really just let families know that they have these rights and give them the opportunity to engage legal counsel to help them through the investigation process. Uh, we think it's much needed and will actually help improve outcomes across the board for kids and families that are having contact with the child welfare system. Sounds like a worthy cause. Um, you know, since we're on the track of families, let me also highlight a bill that I don't like, uh, and that's HB 176. What is HB 176, and you ask? why don't you like it? This would actually remove Texans' ability to use single-use plastic bags. Now, you're probably wondering, what the heck does that have to do with families? Well, I can tell you, as the proud parent of five kids, we use single-use plastic bags over and over again throughout our house, uh, not only to carry home groceries, but in our little tra uh, plastic uh, trash receptacles, to take lunches, yep. uh, to do all sorts of things. And so uh, while kind of small and silly, I think this is a, a bad bill that deserves to go down in flames. But don't burn plastic. But don't burn plastic. Another one that I'm really excited about, it's House Bill 2374 by Representative Sanford. It, we're calling it the DFPS Efficiency Audit Bill. So all state agencies are required to do regular financial audits. 
But a financial audit really only makes sure that they're spending money properly and have the right financial controls in place. It doesn't tell us, are they actually being effective with the taxpayer dollars that they're spending? So House Bill 2374 would require the Department of Family and Protective Services to do an efficiency audit every four years in an even-numbered year immediately preceding a legislative session. Now, what does that efficiency audit do? Well, it asks the question, are you getting the best outcomes possible with the money that you're spending? And are there ways for you to spend that money better to get better outcomes? So we look at things like outsourcing, eliminating duplicative efforts, finding waste that's going on in uh, agency spending. Ultimately, we can improve outcomes for children and families while spending less money if we employ these efficiency audits properly. So just uh, just off the top of your head, if this law passes, what are the kinds of things that you think would be found in a future efficiency audit of DFPS? Well, one thing that we found just within the last month or so is about half of the money that the Department of Family and Protective Services gets through a federal program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families is being spent on administrative expenses rather than what it's intended to be spent on, which is helping families that are struggling with poverty. And so rather than these taxpayer dollars going to the families most in need, they're being used on employee benefits, IT improvements, and other administrative things that have nothing to do with actually helping families within the department. We think we'll find a lot more of that. And what's really great about the way the efficiency audits work is they come with recommendations on how to use the money more effectively. Oh, that, that sounds like a worthy cause. And let, let me use this opportunity to segue using perhaps a little bit stronger transition this time, because uh, I am informed that uh, a certain senator is going to be filing a bill related to city and county efficiency audits. Uh, we're going to be asking the legislature to require political subdivisions of a certain size to undergo a third-party efficiency audit of their budget and operations. I think this is uh, perhaps needed now more than ever because we have a wave of federal funds coming our way and we need to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row and they're not, we're not just wasting money hand over fist. Uh, and so uh, I'm very much looking forward to uh, lending the foundation support on that bill. And then another bill that hasn't quite been Hold filed on one yet. Uh-oh. Second. Uh-oh. So He's got that look in his eye. This bill has not been filed yet. And it's being filed by a certain senator. Mm-hmm. Indeed. A certain James senator. James little tease you. <laughs> so. I've got another one that is uh, not quite filed yet, but this one's been announced. It's one of the lieutenant governor's top 31 priorities, which is why I know its name, the Business Freedom and Uniformity Act, otherwise known as Senate Bill 14. This is a bill that I think uh, is going to provide some local government employment preemption. So we're uh, we're going to take away local government's ability to tell a business how they ought to operate and what sorts of benefits they should be providing. Uh, there's a, a few radicals here at the foundation that think the business owner knows best and what kind of benefits ought to be provided. So uh, we have some really crazy ideas here. We're looking forward to uh, that one getting filed in the near future. It's, it's got to be before Friday. 
So it does have to be before Friday, bill filing deadline. So does that come out of the paid sick leave issue that Austin had a while ago? Yes. So this is, uh, this is probably going to riff off a lot of the fight that, uh, happened in 2019 with a few changes though. Uh, there's some things that have happened over the interim that I think changed the complexion of this fight at least a little bit. So looking forward to, uh, very much getting involved again and, and, uh, telling the legislature why cities should get out of the business of telling businesses what to do. Gosh, that's crazy. You are a wild, <laughs> wild person, James Quintero, with your radical ideas. Well, that leads me to our deep dive segment with two bills that have recently been filed. House Bill 1925 by Representative Capriglione and Senate Bill 987 by Senator Buckingham. Both of these bills would prohibit public camping statewide. These are a direct response to the homelessness epidemic that is plaguing Austin and many large cities uh, across the state of Texas. Joining us for our first interview, special guest of the Chase podcast is Michelle Steeb, who is a senior fellow with the foundation overseeing our work on homelessness policy. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, and you actually escaped California <laughs> with the mission of coming to Texas to save us from the dystopian nightmare that we're heading towards in your former home state. Yes, Austin has, uh, is, is following very quickly, uh, unfortunately, in the failed footsteps of California. But hopefully our efforts will uh, prevent that from continuing. Well, we are glad to have you at the foundation and happy to have you in Texas. Tell us a little bit more about House Bill 1925 and Senate Bill 987. So both uh, bills uh, restrict uh, cities and uh, other entities within Texas from allowing public camping. Uh, both were uh both are strongly uh, opposed to, uh, they will uh, actually incur fines. Cities or, or other entities that allow them will incur fines, uh, very significant fines, though not, not limited, not limited in terms of the source of uh, a fine nor the amount of funding uh, that can be used to, to fine a city or another entity. Uh, both have very significant teeth in terms of curbing uh, the growing number of what is called the street homeless, uh, those who are living on the streets uh, in Texas and other cities throughout, uh, in, in Austin and other cities throughout Texas. And as I understand it, this is going directly after, uh, after things that we saw in Austin where they legalized public camping and we had tent cities basically popping up all over town. You, you call them Adlervilles, right, James? Uh, guilty. <laughs> um, and actually just this weekend, we had um, one of those uh, tent cities underneath the I-35 overpass in Austin um, go up in flames. I saw a photo of it online. It was just this tower of flame and black smoke billowing out from underneath uh, the highway. Fortunately, from what I've heard, nobody was injured. Um, but some folks who don't have a whole lot probably lost basically everything that they own because of the unsafe conditions that are existing in these 
uh, tent cities that have been allowed to pop up. Uh, Michelle, that's really a symptom of a much larger problem that you've spent your career um, working on. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the deeper issues involved in the homelessness epidemic? Sure. So uh, if, if, if you were to uh, look at the homeless population in general, uh, somewhere around 78% struggle with mental illness and addiction and physical disability. Uh, other issues that lead people to homelessness include a lack of education, uh, domestic violence, and in, in particular as it relates to women, uh, you know, uh, not having the, the proper work skills. So there's a, it's a very complex issue, but the majority of the homeless are struggling with what are what's called co-occurring disorders, largely mental illness and addiction. In 2011, at the federal level, uh, the federal government is the largest funder of homelessness. They uh, instituted a plan under HUD that, uh, that basically said that what we're going to do for the homeless is put them in a house. That's it. We're not going to help them address the underlying issues that led them to homelessness. We're going to give them a house. And because homelessness is the problem, that the best solution is a house. This plan, uh, as it was rolled out to, yeah, as it was rolled out to everyone uh, who struggles with homelessness, uh, we saw. And, and by the way, there was a promise by HUD, literally a promise, that this approach would end homelessness in a decade. And homelessness since then has gone up by at least 16%, 22% in the unsheltered population, which is, is a great irony because this policy was really developed for the street homeless, the unsheltered uh, homeless. And it's just failed everywhere. It's failed at the national level. It's failed in Austin, which uh, is governed by a housing first philosophy. It's failed in California, which is governed by a housing first philosophy. It's failed in Utah, which initially was governed by a housing first philosophy, and they have retooled uh, everything. So this policy has literally forced the system to be impacted and, and that's why we see the lines out the doors. That's why shelters have such a great waiting list. That's why we're seeing so many more people on the street because the system is completely full. It's impacted. It will never get big enough under this policy to serve everyone who enters into homelessness. And we're seeing the effects uh, of this right now in terms of the street homelessness in Austin and in other places throughout Texas. So under this housing first policy that you mentioned, we give them a house and that'll solve homelessness. Are there any expectations? Are there any services that are provided for some of those co-occurring issues that you were discussing, like mental illness or drug addiction? None. And in fact, not only are there no expectations, but HUD won't fund any of those services any longer under housing first. The only thing HUD will fund is the actual house. So people are, you're not allowed to actually require uh, the people living in that house 
or the person living in that house to engage in services to help him or her heal. You're not allowed to require them to be sober. You're not allowed to require them to engage in mental health services, uh, to engage in work training. You're not even allowed to require them to increase their income through, you know, legitimate legal sources. So it's it's really uh, an incredibly um, simple, uh, quote unquote, solution to a very complex problem that has failed because there is no one size fits all solution. And it's not a simple problem. It's a very complex problem. Michelle, what, what's the policy rationale for disallowing people uh, the ability to enter into treatment services or, or you know, get get other needs met? Well, Why you, is HUD? Yeah, you, you can allow people, you, you can tell people you think it would be a good idea, but you cannot require uh, them to engage in those services. So stepping back to... I mentioned earlier, this this policy was developed for the street homeless. And the idea when it was impl- implemented in 2008 was, let's get the street homeless off the street as quickly as possible. In order to do that, let's not have any barriers. Let's not, to, for them getting in the housing, let's not require anything of them. And And for that population, that might make sense, though, Many of us have argued we want to see short-term and long-term data to support that. <clears throat> but under the uh, last administration, the second to last administration, the uh, Obama-Biden administration, this was rolled out without any credible evidence. This was rolled out as a one-size-fits-all solution. And again, it wasn't designed for everyone who struggles with homelessness. It was designed for again, the street homeless, which represents somewhere around 15 to 20% of the total homeless population. When you look at the entire population, about 80% are people who, with the proper tools, with the proper encouragement and incentive, can heal from their afflictions and become productive and and, and lead fulfilling lives. Uh, even some of the street homeless can do that as well. But right now we have a policy that's really designed for a very narrow segment that we, we're not even sure is, is succeeding for that segment and certainly not succeeding for uh, the overall population. And on that topic of healing, you recently wrote a book called Answers Behind the Red Door. I've read it. It's fantastic. Congratulations Thank on that. You. Thank you. But in that book, you tell stories of your time running a homeless shelter for women and children and how many of the clients were able to overcome their situation and move on to having fulfilling lives of dignity. Could you tell us just a little bit about how the expectations that you were talking about enabled them to do that and maybe convey one of those stories? Sure, I, there's so many. Uh, but let me say, we we were a very successful program. We had, you know, hundreds, thousands of stories of women overcoming addiction, mental illness, lack of work training, uh, lack of uh, you know education, and and become self sustaining. We lost funding 
uh, significant funding in 2017 under Housing First, not because of our outcomes, but because all of a sudden we were considered to be too high barrier, meaning we required too much of our women and children. That is literally in writing uh, for anyone to see. Uh, so that's what uh, you know forced me to dig into this policy and what it what it means. But at St. John's, what I often said uh, to our women and to our staff was, we're preparing these families for success in life. And life is tough. Life is, it, it's demanding. It, we, we all need to obey civil law. We all need to obey uh, life's uh, rules in order to succeed in life. And we need to have an education. We need to work. We need to raise our families. We, all these things that we need to do to be successful in life, we taught them to do at St. John's. It's starting with even the, the, the simplest things. I have a story of a woman named Sandy, who came to us at 26 years old, she had lost two children to the system. Uh, and we eat as a community at St. John's every night. So she sat down her first night at, at her table with her, you know, uh, with some other women and their children. And some, and, and she was chewing very loudly. And someone looked over and said, Sandy, you know, you, you got to chew with your mouth closed. Sandy was 26 years old. She had never been told that she needed to chew with her mouth closed. She learned that at St. John's. So we need to start with, with giving them the tools to be successful in life. And that includes expectations that we all live under as, as members of a civil society. So how will TPPF be involved in homelessness this legislative session? And what would you like to see the legislature do to address this problem and prevent Texas from repeating the mistakes that California made? Well, first and foremost, it is fantastic that Texas has not adopted housing first as its one size fits all approach to homelessness like California has and, and many other states have. So we're, we start on a very good footing. We would really love to see Texas become a model uh, for other states who are failing miserably in not only serving the homeless, but in uh, helping neighborhoods and businesses to thrive because neighborhoods and businesses are being swallowed uh, in so many states throughout the country by this problem. They, they, are, they are so severely impacted. So Texas starts off at a, at a great place. It's, it doesn't have, it, homelessness has increased in Texas by 10% over the last decade, unsheltered by 12%, but it's not, you know, facing a crisis like California at this point, which is, you know, a 16% increase uh, just in the last year and a half. Um, what Texas really needs to do is develop a vision for the homeless, and and that starts with helping them to become all they were intended to be, to fulfilling their uh, their fullest human potential. And that does not mean keeping them in the state or the disease in which they entered homelessness. So we need to have a, a continuum that that fuels growth for the homeless. And that's going to look different for different people, right? Not everyone is going to be able to, to be self-sustaining, but they all can be better. They all can contribute in certain ways to their own 
um, health and well-being, but also to the community's health and well-being. It drives me crazy right now, especially during the COVID time, when I see the homeless being excluded from the mask mandate. What we're saying to the homeless when we do that is they're different than us and they don't deserve, you know, the same kind of protections that we, the rest of society deserve. It's really, uh, it's a horrible thing that we do. It's a horrible disservice to them. And it's a horrible disservice to our community because as we learned from the uh, hepatitis A outbreak in 2016 in San Diego, uh, in the homeless populations, these kinds of disease diseases spread rapidly and we need to give them the tools and then the protections that we're, uh, you know, offering to the rest of, of the communities, right? So w- we need to have a model in Texas that fuels growth, uh, that, that treats people like everyone else uh, in, in our uh, state is treated, that, that gives them the dignity to, um, upholds their dignity. Uh, we also need to really look at aligning uh, funding sources that we in Texas do have control over. A lot of these dollars are federal dollars, but we in Texas um, are given these monies with with some flexibility to uh, bring them together and help the homeless heal. The federal government dollars uh, that that flow through HUD, we don't in Texas, even though they come through our communities, through counties and through COCs, uh, continuum of care uh, boards, we don't have any control over those monies, but we do have control over SNAP and TANF and uh, different substance abuse disorder monies, different mental health monies that we should really bring together and intentionally use to help the homeless grow and heal. Well, that's great. And if folks were interested in reading your book, Answers Behind the Red Door, where can they find that? On Amazon. We'd, we'd love to see you there. All right. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. We look forward to working with you on this. Well, James? I've got a question. We're surrounded by all of this new fancy equipment and producer Crystal over here has some big shiny board with lots of lights and gizmos on it. We're moving up in the world. I mean, it kind of makes me wonder if she has any sound effects or any any uh, fancy noises. Uh-oh. <laughs> Not yet. She opened the Pandora's box last week. By Tune in next made. week to see what kinds of sound effects we have. Well, James, good luck tomorrow on HB3 Testimony. If folks want to learn more, www.texaspolicy.com. Thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been The Chase.